Welcome to this Digital Futures Audio Insight from TLT. I'm Emma Erskine-Fox, an associate in our digital team. In a moment, you can listen to discussion from our roundtable on artificial intelligence, a new frontier. Why are lawyers talking about artificial intelligence? Well, there are some complex and new problems which we need to resolve, and the law is struggling to keep up with the technology. In this discussion, we'll look at what actually is AI, where intellectual property rights come in with AI-created works, and how we deal with privacy and ethics when using AI to make decisions using personal data. Uh, my name is Daniel Lloyd. I'll be hosting the event today. We're very fortunate to have three fantastic speakers. We have Juliette Mason, who's a legal director in our technology team. We have Emma Erskine-Fox, who's an associate in our data protection team. And we have Brian Craig, who heads up our data protection team in London. And what we're going to do today is look at artificial intelligence, AI, and the legal issues associated with that from an IP point of view and from a data protection and data transparency point of view. So we're going to split the session into two. First of all, we're going to look at AI from an IP point of view, some of the intellectual property issues that come up. And then we're going to look more towards the data protection issues. So if I look back at my own life for a moment, to be a bit narcissistic about it, forgive me. I remember 25 years ago, I'd wake up when I was working as a barrister. I'd go downstairs, have three cigarettes, and think to myself, what have I not done before I need to get to Penzance by 10 a.m. in the morning? Uh, I don't smoke now, so good news. But uh, my, my main point is my daily experience now is very different. I wake up, the first thing I do is go downstairs and say to Alexa, what's the news, what's going on with the weather, play BBC Radio 4. So the point is that AI is very much a kind of present-day reality. It's with us in many different areas. Um, one story that really amused me recently was the game Quake, where DeepMind trained up a bunch of AI bots to play Quake in a tournament. And at the end of the tournament, the human players were invited to vote who was the best human player in Quake, and the DeepMind AI bot won. So effective was the DeepMind in training the AI bots to play the game. It effectively passed the Turing test in the context of the game itself, to the point where it fooled all the human players into believing it was a human. There's also a dark side to AI. So military robots, they are very much a present reality. We talk about the US. Um, Google might be saying, on the one hand, we're not going to develop AI for military applications, but the US military is certainly in the business, as is the British military, in the business of developing AI for military application. And that's obviously an ethical question that needs to be considered and discussed. And equally, perhaps a, a, another darker note or unfortunate note, we had the story this week of the uh, AI doctor who walked into an elderly patient's room at night and gave him a terminal diagnosis. He was 97 years old, and the AI doctor informed him he had two to four days to live. The AI doctor was correct, but maybe that's not the best way in which a terminal diagnosis should be given. You would rather have a human voice, surely, delivering such a diagnosis. So AI poses all sorts of questions. And the law, in that sense, is somewhere behind, or some way behind, uh, regulating or looking at what AI should, uh, what the law on AI should say or what it should be. Because there's very little in the way of AI-specific regulations. At the moment, the most developed AI regulations that we could think of when we did some research on it, was really looking at driverless cars. You can say without doubt that there's quite an advanced discussion, given how much the technology has emerged over the last two or three years and how much it's improved, to look at the question of how driverless cars should be regulated. But in other areas, what's notable about AI-specific policies and specific laws is their absence, the fact that they're not there at the moment. It's a bit like the internet 25 years ago. And so as lawyers, we're left with the problem of how do we actually look at these areas and understand how the law should be applied when we don't really understand yet how the law has really thought these questions through. So we're always applying older legal concepts which were drafted with a different era in mind. The Copyrights Act was written in 1988. So it's bizarre that we're now applying that to AI creations in 2019. 
The uh, furthest we've got is the current EC guidelines, which say that uh, they identify seven key requirements that AI applications should respect to be considered trustworthy. They are human agency and oversight, technical robustness and safety, privacy and data governance, transparency, diversity and non-discrimination, and fairness, we'll be talking about that in a bit, societal and environmental wellbeing, and accountability. That's great, guidelines, really delighted to hear that. But we are a long way away at the moment from any kind of meaningful directive or regulation or act of parliament dealing with the question of how AI should be regulated and what that should look like. So, that being said, we're going to get a grip on artificial intelligence. Maybe the first question we should ask ourselves is, what is intelligence? But the point about human intelligence is, I think it's something that's inherently social. What makes us unique is our ability to know the world in different ways and develop different methods of thinking about the world. So the way we think about the world is in terms of how we know something, how we have knowledge of it, how we interact with it. We have two traditions which are kind of preeminent in Western philosophy over the last three or four hundred years. We have the idea of empiricism, you know the world through interacting with it, looking at evidence, making assumptions about that evidence. And we have rationalism, the idea you can know the world through abstract thought. You have those two traditions that run through Western thinking, Western thought, or all kind of practical knowledge in this day and age. And then we also have the idea of our own emotional intelligence, our emotional inner selves, and how we interact with each other, and how we reflect upon what we know in the world abstractly, what we know in the world through our own experience of it, how we know the world through our ideas of how the world actually is, to give ourselves a sense of what's going on, and then how we reflect upon that and develop as human beings. For example, Einstein, always amazed by Einstein, when he developed the theory of relativity, that wasn't based on experiment. He literally imagined it. He had a dream based on his knowledge of electromagnetism and uh, light, and from that dream derived a theory of relativity, special relativity, to understand the universe. And what's extraordinary about that thought experiment is basically a function of imagination. And from there, he was able to devise that theory, and every time it's been tested subsequently, it's been found to be true. A truly extraordinary piece of intelligent thinking. Not something you would think an AI would be capable of at this point in time. Uh, conversely, Shakespeare, the first modern playwright, and according to the literature, the reason why he's the first modern playwright, he's the first playwright to really posit in every principal character in his plays the ability to develop emotionally or morally. What's interesting about the characters in his plays is they're never the same character at the end of the play to where they were at the start of the play. There's lots of Shakespeare characters we can think about in that context. Macbeth, take your pick. But the point is that what's interesting about Shakespeare is he really pays homage to that idea of how we all develop through our interactions with others, how we reflect upon our experience and how that changes us as people and how that changes the way we relate to each other. So I'll take that idea of human intelligence and pose it out there for a moment, just think about that and contemplate it, whilst I hand over to Juliet the much harder task of explaining what AI is capable of in the here and now. So the question of whether AI is intelligent is difficult to determine because intelligence is a relative term. It means different things to different people, and it means different things to different times and eras. One of the reasons that the confusion can come in is understanding today what AI can and cannot do, and therefore whether the intelligence line has been crossed. Now, one way of looking at this is going back to the beginnings of AI, and the fundamental question of whether AI should be used to replace the work that humans do, or augment it. Now, this is an ongoing debate and it can be reviewed from many different angles. The position that I'm most interested in today is the practical view, not the so much futuristic robots will take over the world view. Now, some of you may be aware that TLT itself recently investigated and brought to market an AI product. 
And some of you may even have seen the TLT legal sifter banners in the foyer. There's been a lot of discussion about AI in the legal industry recently. And the focus has particularly been on corporate and financial due diligence, uh, e-discovery litigation, contact drafting. When the TLT team went to the market headed by James Tuzel, we were specifically looking at contract advice. We identified as a need from our clients, that their volumes of contract review was increasing, but their budgets to send it externally were not, and their internal capacity was not increasing. Now, when we went to market, there was nothing there that actually gave contract advice until we came across Legal Sifter. Now, not despite how impressive Legal Sifter is, no AI can give contract advice without human input to any degree of accuracy. It can certainly identify which clauses are present or missing. It can give you general advice as the, the points which should be covered in that clause from a pro-customer or pro-supplier position but it cannot give you specific recommendations of how you change that clause for that specific matter. It also can't tell you whether you should accept or reject a particular change that the other side has proposed in a negotiation. This is because AI cannot give that level of judgment because it doesn't have the background knowledge. General AI, the ability to have context in the wider field, does not yet exist. Only narrow AI exists. This doesn't mean it's not very impressive. It is. It's amazing, but it is all forms of narrow AI. And therefore, in my view, AI should certainly be used to augment humans, not replace the work we do. Now, AI has been around for a long time. So why all the recent hype? If it's been around for a long time, why hasn't this hype happened 10, 20 years ago? Until recently, none of these enablers have come together to be able to make an AI a commoditized product, a practical tool that can be used in modern day. I'm going to go through four enablers today. Big data. Data is the fuel for AI. In order for an untrained algorithm to provide any accuracy, it needs to be trained on a huge amount of data. Even the most simple model needs a huge amount of examples to learn. And this is why some of the huge internet and social media giants are so big in this field. They have so much data. So they're able to value and use this data, feed it into their AI products and create a valuable, trained model that can be useful. Cheap storage. Huge amounts of data in the world. Where is it all going to be stored? Now, the diminishing cost of storage, coupled with the diminishing uh, size of the machines required to store that data, has allowed AI to progress because it has allowed the huge amounts of data to explode without being restricted by financial and practical considerations. Superfast processing. Now, there's the obvious advance of superfast processing, and you would see in AI, the obvious reason you would want it is able to allow for real-time processing. This is very helpful, don't get me wrong. But the, what takes time in relation to an AI is that is the time it takes to train an untrained algorithm. Even the most simple model takes overnight to train. So can you imagine how long it takes to train a very complicated model? Connectivity. There's the obvious advantage of connectivity, social media, building data, etc., etc. The other advantage of connectivity is even though the internet has been around for a while, it's only been with the recent globalization of 4G and broadband, we were able to quickly move large data sets from a server to a handheld device, which means the heavy lifting 
processing of AI can be done in a data center, or the output is in your hand, for example, in a phone. But none of these enablers include any AI. So why am I talking about them? It's to demonstrate that AI has been around for a while, but it's only been recently that we're able to use it as a practical, usable tool in modern day. It was Alan Turing back in 1950 who gave the first test of intelligence for a computer. The Turing test is whether a computer can exhibit behaviours equivalent to a human. Could a human be fooled into thinking it's talking to another human when it is actually talking to a machine? In my view, it's a question of context. In question of context, you've got to look at what AI can do today and what it can't do. You're looking at capabilities. And this is one view of how you can group capabilities of AI. There's the first group, the most mature group, capturing information. Image recognition, speech recognition, search. Google search is an AI product. The second group, slightly less mature, but still useful tool, natural language understanding. Has anyone recently been on a website to buy something and a little pop-up has come on? Susan from Customer Services would like to see if she can help you. That is not a person. Susan is a machine. Planning, problem solving. What is my fastest way home on a Friday night? To the more complicated, driverless cars. Predicting. Anyone been on Amazon recently, bought some products? And at the bottom it says, these are other products that other customers have bought. Would you also like to buy these? That isn't just looking at what other customers have bought. That is an AI tool analysing what you have bought and analysing and thinking what you in particular create also buying that purchase. To the more sophisticated. Predicting credit card fraud before it happens. Predicting when a customer may leave you before they actually leave you so you can do something about it. All of these are incredible. But they are all examples of narrow AI. The final group, why? Why something is happening? Understanding. This is general AI. This is the holy grail of the AI world. And this simply does not exist outside of our brains today. As general AI does not exist, if you're looking at it in the context of narrow AI, arguably, yes, AI is intelligent, but only as a limited field. General AI does not exist. So if that is your test, if that you're looking to seek and find, no, it does not yet exist. And artificial intelligence is not intelligent. Intellectual property rights. There's two parts of intellectual property rights in AI that I want to talk about. The first is in relation to IP in the different parts of the AI technology. And the second is the IP and ownership of works created by AI. So the first. Now, it's quite difficult to break down AI into separate parts. So this is a broad brush approach, and I'm happy to be challenged on it. It's to explain the principles. The first one, the untrained algorithm. This is a piece of software written by a human. This is software. The second part, data. You need the data to train the algorithm. Machine learning, the capability for a computer to do more than it has been specifically trained to do, learning by example. This is fiendishly impressive, but it is just software. The trained model, the untrained algorithm, trained by the data, using machine learning to produce the trained model. Again, it is software. So let's talk about data for a moment. IP and ownership and data. You cannot own data under English law. 
You can have rights in relation to data, but you cannot have rights in the data itself. For data to be protected, it has to be classed in a specific category. Confidential information, personal data, database rights. So you can't rely on IPR. You can't rely on statute. You can't rely on case law. So if you want to protect your data and how it's going to be used, particularly in AI, you have to practically control access and contractually protect yourself. So you have to be very explicit in your contracts of what you're allowing them to do with it, how they're going to do it, when they're going to return it, delete it, assign it, transfer it, anything. Because the law doesn't cover you. In the United Kingdom, software is primarily protected by copyright. There are no specific AI copyright rules for software. It's just copyright and software. Same rules apply. The main problem here is when you look at the trained model. Because the law assumes that the creator or author is a human. But no human created the trained model. The machine itself learned by example and created the trained model. So there may be copyright in it, but who owns those rights? Who can exercise them? The same problem happens for works created by AI. Who is the inventor, the author, the creator? It's not a human, it's a machine. Now, this isn't to say that IP laws don't cover this at all. The Copyright Design and Patent Act does refer to computer-generated works. And it says the person who owns those works is the person who undertook the necessary arrangements. Statue doesn't help you, doesn't clarify. And there's not enough case law in relation to AI to clarify what that means. So if you don't know what it means, you don't know what necessary arrangements you need to take to make sure you are deemed the person who owns it. Not helpful. In some limited circumstances, it could be patentable. I'm not going to go into whether and what circumstances software is and is not patentable. We would be here all night. So let's take the giant leap and assume that there are some circumstances when it could be patentable. The patent act absolutely assumes that the inventor is the human. Not helpful. What I'm trying to get at is if you cannot rely on traditional IP rights, your IP clauses need to be overhauled, rewritten, looked at without the concept of IP in them, because IP doesn't really apply to this. So again, as I said in relation to the data point, you have to be explicit in what you, who owns it, what rights there are, how it may be assigned, how can it be transferred, etc., etc., etc. You have to delete the word intellectual property from that entire clause because it means nothing in this context. Anyone recognise these images or paintings? Really famous painter, no? The one on the far left as you're looking at it should be recognisable to you, maybe. It's the first painting to be sold by uh, Sotheby's for several million and is actually painted by an AI. So uh, you would definitely say it was original. Uh, so the author's own skill and judgment, uh, i.e. that of the AI, was exercised in order to create that. And you would certainly say that painting therefore attracts copyright, is an image that's capable of attracting copyright under the Copyright Act. Um, but who owns it is a different question. The other paintings are also AI paintings. Uh, but the point I'm making is there's a difference between uh, whether or not something can attract copyright in the way that Juliet was alluding to by function of having its own skill and judgment uh, being put into it by the author. Uh, so that can certainly attract copyright. Uh, and a difference between that and the person who's making the arrangements who therefore has the ownership of that image. And the law, as it stands at the moment, is it's nonsensical to talk about AI being able to exercise rights of uh, ownership in the context of personhood. So it's very important in that context to then talk about the IP rights in the way that Juliet did to specify out exactly what rights you're ascribing in the contract and how you're claiming ownership of them. Uh, because if you're going to ascribe ownership 
uh, or legal personhood to an AI. The problem is then, obviously, if I was the AI that painted that painting, apart from the fact I'd be ashamed of it, uh, I'd obviously want the royalties on it or the millions to land on my own bank accounts. And clearly at that point, you immediately run into the barriers that Juliet's alluded to, that AI, actually, AI is actually quite limited at the moment. It's very difficult for the law to ascribe to AI all the notions of human agency that, we would all, that you as people and individuals would uh, have as human subjects under the law in this room, in the here and now. Because now it just doesn't have that ability. So it's possible to talk about copyright being attached to an image created by an AI, but the ownership is still very much residing with the human who makes the necessary arrangements under the Copyright Act. The question becomes a little bit less clear when you look at the question of liability, and the best illustration of that at the moment is probably Tesla. So Tesla have had two fatal crashes, three years apart, in almost identical circumstances, using slightly different software. The first one was Mobileye software in 2016. Tesla going down the road didn't see the lorry crossing its way and went straight under the lorry, um, killing the passenger as the roof was sheared off. Sorry to be so graphic, I didn't mean to cause offence. Three years later, by that point, they'd sacked Mobileye, got a different contractor in to put the cameras around the outside of the car, and uh, the same error happened again. Uh, the car didn't see the lorry crossing the road, and the car went under the lorry. The reason I'm making that point is that the question then became, who was liable in that context for the um, terrible thing that happened? Who's, who, should Tesla be found liable at that point for the accident? And uh, the National Transport Safety Board in the US decided no. Their view was that they'd adopted the uh, standard set out by the automotive industry, the automotive engineers, the Society of Automotive Engineers, and they'd set out a set of standards in relation to driverless cars. And their view was that there are six levels to automation related to driverless cars, going up in sophistication from level one all the way to level six. And level one to three, they would describe as driver assist, i.e. the driver is still very much in control. And levels three to six, at that point you're entering true driverless car territory, and it's acknowledged the driver at that point is not in control, and the driver is therefore not liable or held responsible for what the car is doing. And levels, sorry, four to six, when the software gets to be that good, you can describe the car as truly driverless. The Tesla, which is arguably the most developed autopilot, that's what they call it, autopilot, driverless car software in the world today, is level two on that system. And they, they make that very clear in fairness to Tesla, they make that very clear in their material. So they always say, you as a driver must always be in control. And that was accepted by the National Transport Safety Board. So from a public law point of view, Tesla are in the clear. There's obviously a private contractual question over ongoing litigation in relation to whether or not they were negligent in the way they designed that software or the way it might have been implemented. In fact, it's the same mistake twice over three years. But those are all sort of questions that I'm not going to necessarily look at in the here and now because I'm not really equipped to answer those sorts of questions. But just to raise the point, it's an interesting question because in the context of driverless cars, you can definitely see there's a, more of an argument to say you should ascribe to the driverless software, once it gets to level four, five, and six, certain notions of personhood or human agency insofar as those cars are driving on the road, exercising all the rights and duties that you would expect a driver to be able to operate. You are, we are literally placing our fate in the hands of that software at that point in time. So in that context, it is possible to ascribe certain notions of human agency to driver's cars. But you still can go all the way to legal personhood, because uh, ultimately, as we all know, in the event that there is a, a car crash, things aren't resolved by another episode of Robot Wars or by playing Carmageddon. Everything gets resolved in the courts, and then we're back into the social world that we all live in here and now, the legal world, in relation to how those disputes are resolved. And that all has to be done through uh, the agency of the law and how it's mediated. So again, it's kind of fairly nonsensical to ascribe to uh, driverless software, driverless cars, any notion of legal agency beyond the limited capacity in which it's actually driving on the road at any one point in time. So I've talked enough.
That's enough from me. Uh, any questions at this point on the IP side, what we've been talking about today? Yeah, I have um, just been involved in building a legal technology startup that is in a, in a business incubator. The incubator is just assigning all of our IP rights yeah. to the new company that's been set up. So this has definitely got me thinking about um, what the implications are. And I suspect we might not even change the contracts too much. Um, a lot of the AI models, well, the, the matrix of different pieces of software that you have to put together to get AI to work, most of it is open source. It's the configuration mm -hmm. of all those different open source models that you control and I guess ultimately own. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't know if ownership is the most important thing really, because we, we're still going to control it. It depends on what circumstance you're looking at it. The time, particularly with the trained model, when I've seen ownership become the biggest issue, is when you're using it with a customer and it's in the field, it is continuously learning. And if they're feeding data in, then technically they're advancing your model. So it's important to maintain the fact that despite that their data and their processes are forwarding your model because it's an evolve, always an evolving beast, that's when it comes into it. Anybody else? Um, it's not so much on the IP side of it, but we provide AI services that our customers can use. And one of the things that we're grappling with is that in a normal contract, when there's service provision between a customer and a supplier, if something goes wrong, it normally goes wrong once. With AI, there is the possibility that you are continually doing something wrong over and over again. So we're trying to grapple with the way we structure our liability caps to make sure that we provide a good service at a cheap price, mm -hmm. but also that we don't have a liability exposure that wouldn't make providing those services economical and rewarding for the company. Yeah. So it's not so much an IP problem, but it's a liability problem for us. I think that's very fair. AI is an evolving beast by the nature of it, and therefore you have to have a different approach to necessary that you would be able to do traditionally. I think that's a very, very fair point. Have you had any experience of that, Juliet, coming up in the contracts you negotiated with the various companies you work with? It always depends about whether, in the ones I've done, whether you're advising on the customer side or the supplier side, which issues come up the most. The customers who have been receiving the use of the AI product are mostly worried about their data they're putting in and the control of that and the retention of that and that being deleted afterwards, particularly if it includes personal data as well. Well, suppliers are always far more worried, and as I was saying before, the development of their model during that process. And despite the fact that the customer is assisting in that development, that they may retain control over that. And one thing that comes up again and again is people not realizing that you can't own data. You only have rights in relation to data. And that often comes up. People don't realize the value in that data. In any AI product, the value comes from the algorithm and the data. You can have two algorithms, one which is much better than the other, but if the poor algorithm is much better trained, it will be more useful because it's more accurate, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a very much a balance of what you're doing in that particular project. Okay, well, on that note, I'm going to hand over to the, uh, the next speaker, Emma, Fo Emma Erskine-Fox, who will talk to us from a data protection point of view. Emma. Thank you. So Brian and I are going to try and cover the mammoth topic of privacy and ethics in AI in a fairly short space of time. So we'll see where we get to. Um, but first off, why are we talking about privacy and ethics in the same bucket? Um, and the answer to that really lies in this quote, which is a quote from Elizabeth Denham, who you may be aware is the information commissioner 
In the UK, the uh, office, the ICO, is the data protection regulator in the UK. And really, these two concepts, ethics and privacy, are inherently linked. Um, I'm going to quote Juliet from earlier. Um, data is the fuel for AI, right? AI is, is reliant on data and huge volumes of data, and often that data contains personal data. When we're thinking about personal data, we do have a legal framework around that. This is the only time I'm going to mention it in my slot, GDPR. It's done. That's it now. <laughs> um, but there is that legal framework around it. And that legal framework is based very, very much on ethical principles. There's a big focus at a regulatory level in the UK on ethics at the moment. It's something that Elizabeth Denham talks about in pretty much all of her speeches. Um, there's an ICO paper on big data and AI um, and machine learning that has a whole section on ethics. Um, it crops up all the time. And um, as Daniel mentioned earlier, it's, it's kind of getting European attention now as well with the European Commission having recently released their guidelines on ethical AI. So definitely a hot topic. Also a hot topic in the press. AI is in the headlines all the time. Um, it's quite difficult to go a day nowadays without seeing something about AI. And a lot of those headlines, when you think about what the issues are, they really come down to issues with the data and issues about data. Um, you know, recent examples we've seen in the last kind of week or so, um, the Amazon uh, NHS partnership that they've announced with Alexa that's, that's caused um, a bit of uproar. And I think last year, Amazon also hit the headlines because they had to stop using a, an AI recruitment tool because they, they discovered that it was unfairly discriminating against women. Um, this is a great example of how many privacy issues can arise um, in an AI tool. Does anyone know what Predictum is? Does anyone want to know? Beyond a babysitter app is clearly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Predictum um, is an app that, was, that kind of hit the press last summer. Um, because what it does is allow parents in the it's a US app, allows parents to vet potential babysitters by using an algorithm to screen their entire social media and web presence. And it then churns out a risk rating from one to five in um, a few different categories, such as disrespectful attitude, um, drug use, uh, explicit content, you know, things that might make parents think twice about putting somebody in charge of their children. I described this earlier as a privacy lawyer's nightmare, but I think a privacy lawyer's dream might be more appropriate because it's, it's, really, it's really quite fascinating. But some of the kind of key issues that have come out of this, um, first, transparency, or more appropriately in this context, opaqueness. So this is a very, very opaque process. And interestingly, when the app was first launched, the intention was that an email would be sent to potential babysitter to say, you know, that your potential employers want to do this, want you to um, consent to this, and they would then have to opt in. Leave aside the issues of whether or not that would be a valid consent. Um, if you're you know, being threatened with not getting a job, if you don't consent, that's a whole other can of worms. But there at least was that sort of that little element of transparency. What Prediction then found was that parents were coming to them and saying, actually, surprisingly, we feel really uncomfortable telling our potential babysitters that we're going to be stalking their social media history. So can we do this without telling them? Predictum said, yeah, sure, yeah. So now it's a process where the babysitter has no idea that this is going on. Um, they're getting these risk ratings churned out and they just have absolutely no idea. Potentially some real issues with bias and data quality as well. And I was reading a really interesting article um, written by a journalist who had tested Predictum himself on his own family, his own friends, and his own babysitter, who he used quite regularly for his children, had a really good um, and, and long ongoing relationship with. Now, when he put the babysitter through, the babysitter was a young black woman. Um, she was very kind, very respectful, adored by the kids, brilliant with the kids, etc., etc. 
She returned a moderate risk rating, which was three out of five for disrespectful attitude. The journalist then tested it on his son's godfather, who was a white middle-aged man um, who's a comedian, whose Twitter feed was, by his own admission, full of vulgar jokes, sexual innuendos and F-bombs. He returned a low risk rating, and he was, he was, a, he was a white gentleman. Now, what this journalist, who I think he was kind of working with Predictim on this experiment, was involving them in this as well, and said to them, can I see the posts that were flagged as moderate risk, because I want to see what this, what this babysitter has been posting. Um, I'm going to read some of them out. Um, you might be hearing a bit about fudge in the next few sentences. I'm going to try and make it as PG as I can. But these are some examples of some of the posts by the babysitter that the algorithm flagged as um, inappropriate or um, disrespectful. Our legal system is a fudging crazy map. Haven't decided if I'm an indigo child or a narcissist. I'm a personal favourite. One thing I like about myself is that I've never given a fudge about Grey's Anatomy. They, those seem fairly tame. I had a look at the, the, the um, son's godfather's posts and there was no way I could make them PG, I'm afraid. So, but they were, they were much more vulgar, um, much more sort of seemingly inappropriate on the face of it. Things like insults actually directed at actual people and things like that. So, you know, that, that kind of discrepancy um, between those two was really interesting. And the journalist spoke to a data scientist about why he thought this discrepancy might be arising because Predictim are very, very clear that they do not take race into account in their algorithm. That is not one of the data fields that is taken into account. And one of the things that the data scientists thought was that it might be that speech patterns could be acting as a proxy. So even if you don't put in data that, you know, on the face of it could lead to biased outcomes, if there is other data that is somehow linked to that data, potentially, that can still lead to discrimination. And so with speech patterns, the thought behind that was that there are some races and some cultures who are, are associated sometimes with different speech patterns. The algorithm might not recognise those as mainstream speech patterns and therefore might flag them as being um, inappropriate. So it just shows that however hard you try to avoid putting biased data in, you still need to be really, really alive to that risk that actually some of the data you are putting in is still leading to, to those outcomes. That leads quite nicely onto the, the kind of final um, sort of issue that I wanted to, to raise with Predictim, which is to do with the audit and the training. Um, now, Predictim do incorporate human review into their process if posts are flagged or if somebody is flagged as moderate risk or above. So if that happens, that those posts that have been flagged go to a human, human looks at it and says, OK, well, I think that is moderate risk or I think that's high risk or I think that's low risk. Two issues with that. One is that, obviously, if you're only picking up the ones that have been flagged as moderate risk, if there are ones that have been flagged as low risk, but actually are a higher risk, then they're not getting picked up. So you're not able to train the algorithm that way. Um, but also, it just demonstrates the subjectivity of it all, really, because, you know, I look at those, those posts that I read out, I don't see them as being particularly offensive. Clearly, a human looked at these, and that human thought that that is sufficient, in my mind, to flag this, this lady as a moderate risk. So it just means that when you are thinking about audit and, and auditing the outputs, you just need to be really, really alive to that subjectivity um, and bear that in mind in the training of the algorithm. People heard of this, this issue. I think this is quite a well-known. Um, There's definitely a lot of press about this last year, which is China's sort of social credit scoring system takes the idea of normal credit scoring and expands that into every aspect of day-to-day -day life. Um, so what it does is takes information about all sorts of things from, you know, your shopping habits, if anybody's made complaints about you, whether you failed to pay bills on time, 
And this is the interesting one, jaywalking. So crossings in China, some crossings have um, facial recognition technology, and they can see if you've been jaywalking. And that, together with all of the other information, feeds in to give you a social credit score. If you've got a low social credit score, that can then lead to you potentially losing certain rights. So the right to buy tickets for travel, the rights to buy property, rights to take out loans, things like that can also be linked to dating websites, which is quite interesting. So you could, uh, if you were online dating, you could see your potential future partner's credit score and use that as um, your social credit score and use that as part of your um, decision-making process. So again, major transparency issues here because it's very rarely clear why somebody has been denied a certain right. So um, I was reading about a journalist who was blacklisted um, because she writes about corruption in the government. Um, so she's been blacklisted. She can no longer buy tickets to travel. She can no longer buy property, et cetera, et cetera. But the, re the specific reasons for that and the specific things that have been flagged in order to give her that low social credit score that takes those rights away are very, very unclear. There's also no right of recourse and no reporting mechanism. So there's no way that people can say, actually, that wasn't me jaywalking. Your facial recognition technology misidentified me. That wasn't me. That was somebody else. You, at the moment, there's no way of being able to kind of correct those, those outcomes. And huge issues here around automated decision making. Right? These are you know, really, really significant decisions being made about people that have huge effects for them, potentially without any human input at all and without any transparency or explainability around how those are made. Um, and this is one I just thought I'd pull out. There's obviously been a lot about facial recognition in the press recently. Um, this is a convenience store in Tacoma, Washington, um, that has installed a facial recognition security system. So the idea is you go up to the shop as a customer, the doors are locked, there's a camera that takes a photo of you, and the AI then matches you against a database of photographs of known shoplifters in that store. And if it thinks you're not a shoplifter, the doors open and let you in. If it thinks you are a shoplifter, then the doors stay closed and you can't go in. The, the main kind of challenge that's, that's been raised in all the commentary around this really is that facial recognition is famously at the moment not brilliant at recognising faces that aren't white. So the risks of discrimination are much, much higher. The risks of you know, being, being kind of misidentified are much, much higher in this context if you're not a white person and if you're from any other ethnicity. So... And the other thing that kind of springs out to me, really, is this whole idea of necessity. There's a lot of focus in data protection legislation, I didn't say GDPR, in data protection legislation on this idea of necessity and the processing of data being necessary for the purposes that you are looking to achieve. And when you're looking at something that is this intrusive, it's really, really important to think about, is this necessary? Why do we need this? Why can we use CCTV instead, like most normal shops do? You know, can we have security guards? Can we just have the shop owner keeping a bit of a better eye out? You know, lots of people saying about this, it's a very small shop. So people were struggling to see the need for there to be a technology that was this intrusive. So what do all those headlines do? is really draw out some of the main challenges that we see in terms of data protection compliance in the context of AI. We talked a lot about transparency. There's a right for individuals to be told what's happening with their personal data. Two hurdles with that in AI. One, you know, harking back to some of the things that Juliet was talking about, about machine learning. If the algorithm is learning by itself, how do you know what the algorithm is doing? How do you know how it's processing your data? And then if you can get over that hurdle, how do you explain that to people in a way that they're going to understand? Something that the ICO is looking at at the moment with the Alan Turing Institute is how we can explain algorithms and explain automated decisions made by AI. Um, in a way that people actually want to be told. You know, nobody wants lines and lines and lines of code. Nobody cares about that. People want to know, you know, why, on a practical level, why this is happening and what they can do to, to change that. 
links into automated decision making, which again we've talked about. There are restrictions on automated decision making and rights around you know, being told the logic um, behind any automated decision and rights to challenge those automated decisions. So really thinking about where you can bring in human intervention, bearing in mind that human intervention has to be um, has to be meaningful. So you can't just be a kind of rubber stamp or, or tick off, you know, yes, okay, algorithm's done that, we're happy with that. It actually has to be something more meaningful than that. And then data quality. So thinking again about the, the kind of bias points that we've talked about, you may have heard the, the AI adage of, um, you know, bad data in, bad data out, or garbage in, garbage out. So the data you're putting in is really important, making sure that that's accurate and that that's not biased. But equally important is the data that's coming out. And I think that can sometimes get forgotten about. You have got to keep auditing that data, making sure that that's not spitting out kind of inaccurate profiles and inaccurate predictions about people. At this point, I'm going to hand over to Brian. Um, I like these last three because they're contradictions, really. Um, they're, they're opposites with, with AI, really. So um, the first one, minimization. So the data protection legislation, continuing the ban on the, that, that acronym, requires that you only keep the absolute minimum data necessary to, uh, to perform or the, you know, whatever you're going to do with the data. So it's limitation, right? But AI isn't really effective unless you've got a big database to examine. And that goes back to some of the discussion that Emma was having about China. So when you think about this, um, how do you develop a facial recognition software that's going to be super effective? About 15 years ago, I was involved with a company that was trying to figure this out. We didn't have any faces. We needed two faces that would be widely photographed, hundreds of thousands of pictures of them under all conditions, uh, disguises, everything. We settled on two public figures, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. They were publicly available, we could scrape them off the internet, and we could do lots of different evaluations to figure them out. So once we figured out, okay, we're really good at identifying these two faces, but now it'd be really great to have like a data set that was like a billion different faces. And if we had data to correlate against all those faces, that'd be fabulous. So the problem becomes, in order to be really good at facial recognition software, you have to have a massive data set, and you have to have lots of data about the people whose faces you're examining. Um, so it's at odds with the data protection principle of minimization, right? Um, so it's an interesting contradiction, really, in what you're going to do. Um, and so the question is, how can you figure out how to sort of nuance the requirements of the data protection legislation and balance them against this requirement that you have a huge data set with lots of data? And in fact, a large part of the value of that data is unknowable, so you'll have it, but you won't really know why you have it or how to minimize it. So there are interesting challenges there. Um, I'll talk in a second about a possible solution. The next part of that bullet retention, again, at odds, I'd argue that maybe you should freeze everything and keep it for later as opposed to retaining it. But you have to do that in a, probably a particular way. So the rule is that you only keep it as long as it's necessary and then you delete it. You know, we have to keep tax records for so long and business records for so long, whatever it is. So there's a story uh, circulating. There was a piece of it in today's news, actually, about a um, AI exercise that was conducted in Tokyo. I think this is fascinating. So apparently there are a lot of empty lots in central Tokyo, and th that's uh, sort of associated with property and inheritance laws there. Um, and the way that those empty lots have been made profitable is uh, pay by the hour parking and 
uh, car rental schemes. So they were trying to figure out, well, what, how can we make these things pay more? What should we be doing? How can we be selling more of this car rental service? And they did analysis on old records they had that nobody thought of looking at before. Um, these were both electronic and paper records about when people rented cars and what they did with them. They figured out that most of the cars were rented at noon, at 5, and at 11 p.m. at night. And interestingly, that those cars never went anywhere. What was happening at noon? Well, space is at a premium in Tokyo, isn't it? It's hard to find a good place to practice your rap song or to enjoy a sandwich with somebody in a quiet location. So really what you were doing was renting a space about the size of a car to enjoy your lunch. They figured out that people were probably getting changed to go out at around 5 p.m. or having late meetings or something like that. And you can assume for yourself what might, be, might have been happening at 11 p.m. at night. But the point was that, that the value in that data, figuring out, well, my gosh, maybe there's a development opportunity here for us, only came to light from rental car records that nobody thought about looking at before. So how, could we, how can we deal with that when we're supposed to have gotten rid of all that data? Uh, what, should, what, what should we do with it to, um, to make it keepable? So there's a couple of different possibilities around data anonymization that might have worked. But it's an interesting concept that needs to be explored all the way through, and it's probably going to vary depending on what you're trying to accomplish with your AI solution. The next thing about control is that controllers are responsible for personal data and what happens to it. And this is a lead-in to what might be a solution. There's an emerging market for data, mo data set modifiers. So in the US in particular, there's a couple of companies that are doing this. Trifacta and a company called Datamir, and there's a couple of, there's a handful of them. What they do is clean data, reorganize data, and aggregate data so that you can use it for an AI solution. So you could test something with it. So uh, pharmaceutical companies are using this extensively because they want to be able to run, you know, lots of different AI calculations and predict what might happen uh, in terms of drug interactions and things like that. So the challenge, though, is that there's still a human element associated with making those decisions about what's going to happen with the data. So if you were a controller under data protection legislation here, you might have difficulty transferring that data set to somebody else for that purpose. So would you communicate that to people that you were collecting the data from in the first place up front so that you knew to do that? How would you organize your data if you knew it was going to stick around for a long time and you want to use it for unknowable things? So we're thinking through and um, possibly conducting a data protection impact assessment of sorts um, and really evaluating with the business folks, what's, what do we really need this now and what crazy ideas might we have in the future? So the last one, security, uh, uh, is interesting. Uh, the firm has launched its cybersecurity practice, and we do a lot of work with different clients about confidentiality, integrity, and availability, which are the three main things you worry about when you're worried about data, uh, data security. The biggest threat to all of those is a human element. What does AI do? It takes out the human element, right? So people are using AI to evaluate emails you get um, that have uh, that look suspicious 
and they warn you about whether or not you should open them in the first place. So this is fascinating because you can imagine this. You're, you're sitting at your desk, you get an interesting email, and a banner pops up saying, can, you know, take a, take a second to reread this email. It looks like it's overly aggressive. It looks like it might be, it's, it's too urgently written. So it's fascinating that you know, machine learning could evaluate the context of an email to figure out whether or not it's something that you should click on. You know, it might be Dan Lloyd saying, I need something immediately, in which case I didn't delete. No. <laughs> Unfair of me. Um, so another, another uh, certain sort of thing that I've heard about recently is um, the kinds of emails that are used for penetration testing and for, and for um, this kind of a white hat exercise, right, which is, we're on your team. We're not warning you about what's a really a bad email using AI. Instead, we're, we're evaluating your behavior and how you evaluate emails to warn you about, email, about potential emails. But you're going to be clicking on good emails. You might get it wrong over and over again. But we're going to figure out, you know, are you over, you're too empathetic and so you're susceptible to this kind of email or that kind of email. And that data will be helpful for the rest of the firm because we'll understand more about what kind of phishing emails are, are out there. So really the question is, should the human element ever completely disappear from cybersecurity? Aren't we supposed to be in charge of our own security on some level and we can use these tools? Or are we best just stepping aside? I don't know, it's, maybe that's a philosophical question. So just tying the loop, Emma mentioned that uh, we can't forget about ethics and it, it is, a, critical thing to think about all the way through this. And what this slide is really trying to do is say, look, have you actually thought about, is this the right thing to be doing? So, you know, have you done a thoughtful analysis in a DPIA? Have you, do you have governance in place? Is there somebody in charge of thinking about whether or not it's a good thing? And or maybe there's a committee that has to evaluate new initiatives. You know, is there somebody that checks audits? And uh, would it be okay if it was to appear in its entirety in the news, which is the sunshine test up there? So think through those before you launch your AI initiative. In your experience, are these two come across companies that have had to deal with data protection from an AI point of view? Absolutely. We've had um, a client came to us and said, we want to collect a bunch of data from a bunch of different public organizations, and we want to feed that back to an enforcement agency so that they could take action. Whoa, hold on, what are we doing? Well, it's really simple. We're gonna just collect this information from a bunch of different local councils and, and then we're gonna, we're gonna do something magical to it and we're gonna evaluate it and make predictions and then we're gonna tell you who you should go look to see what's, what they're doing and it, I'm being purposefully opaque about this. I'm sorry to, for client confidentiality reasons but we wanna then take some enforcement action potentially about, um, ab about people that we're telling you you should go look at. So we would flag somebody who might do something wrong. So when you think about that, you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty major to think about doing something like that. Have, we, have you done a data protection impact assessment to see whether or not that passes muster? And when you get through a data protection impact assessment, are you still able to do what you want to do lawfully? And from a business perspective, if you weren't doing something quite so dramatic like that, it might be the case that that wouldn't achieve your business objectives. And only by thinking about where all the data flows are, 
would you have finally come to that conclusion? So DPIAs are really important. Yeah. I think they're like the absolute key compliance tool in an AI context when you're processing personal data using AI. And I think, um, <clears throat> but I also think they're quite useful kind of internally as well, because actually what they're about is not about saying necessarily you can't do this. And that's kind of what we're trying to get at with, with this quote um, up there from, from uh, Elizabeth Denham. You, you know, the DPIA isn't about kind of stopping what you're doing. It's not about kind of saying, no, you can't do this anymore. It's about looking at how you can do it in a compliant and ethical way. So it's not, there's this sort of real feeling, I think, as data protection lawyers, that we, I, I was at a conference where data protection lawyers were described as no people. And I was like, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be that. I, you know, I want to be a yes person. You know, yes, this is great. I love technology. I love new tech. This is really exciting. But this is just how you, the process that you go through to make sure that you've thought about all the key risks and that you've put appropriate solutions in place to mitigate those risks because that's what it's about, really. Uh, so does anyone have any questions for Brian or Emma on the data protection side of things? Yeah. Given the fact that the Amazon uh, algorithm is able to predict, oh, you would like a book like this or you're more probably interested in that, um, what are your thoughts on the uh, ICO's view that uh, consent is the correct lawful basis for processing as opposed to the leg legitimate interests? How does a company such as an ad tech vendor mitigate or, or, or use a DPIA to ensure that the processing is lawful and it doesn't uh, impede the rights and freedoms of individuals. So, that's a great question. Thank you so much for repeating. <laughs> that's a, it it's gives, a great uh, question. It's a horrible question, yeah. so I'm yeah. going to let Brian take that one. I love that you threw in rights and freedoms at the end, too. <laughs> that's the magic language, isn't it? You know, the, I think the difference between the how about this thing is that when you are presented with those other books you might want to buy, you're in the Amazon sandbox, aren't you? So you're already there. You're on their website, and they're just saying, hey, here's another thing. You know, it's like being on anybody's website, really. But with the consent basis that you're talking about in ad tech, that's really about you know unfair targeting and things like that. And I think The Guardian did a piece um, a couple of years ago about you know na the Navy targeting uh, people that it thought might not pass their GCSEs and so lived and, and lived 10 miles from the coast and so therefore might make good cooks on Navy ships. So those kinds of unfair targeting <laughs> That, that's in the news, you could look it up. So those kinds of unfair targeting things where n nobody consented to that kind of marketing, I think is, is goes to the ethics point um, that we've been making and also goes to the transparency points that I think are, are in the ICO's guidance. If that is the case, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree, but then how does an organization like an ad tech vendor ensure that there's enough granularity within the consent for instance, for an ad tech vendor, I have a client who uh, deals with uh, information in the gaming uh, space. So uh, there's a lot of looking at how you can target individuals through, uh, through in native in-game uh, advertising. Mm -hmm. And obviously now, from a GDPR perspective, if they're going to be offering this information to their clients, they need to ensure that they have consent for the data subjects, such as the gamers, people who are using the, the systems, they must have consented or at least been made aware of this. And it, it's proving pretty difficult. You can't, it's very difficult to now put up a pop-up banner in the PlayStation or in a Call of Duty game to say, do you consent us to allow mm. us to use this data? So what, what's the sort of solutions that a, a, cli a client like that could use when consent as a basis is very difficult in practice because of how fast everything's going and the way the algorithm are coming to these decisions to 
show these adverts to different individuals. Yeah, what's that's the, supposed to be, end, to be what's instantaneous. The, what's the, what something's got to give eventually. You, can't, you will eventually come to a point where you say, you can't do this. That's a fascinating point, because in the gaming industry, you can see the laws are long made behind. What, Indeed. There's also other context. How you'd apply the distance selling regulations to an in-game app or purchase is a ridiculous question for the designer or developer to be thinking mm. of. What's a durable medium mean? Am I going to send you an email? I'm going to send you a letter to confirm the purchase you just made so you can use it straight away and have it consumed. It's kind of nonsensical. And the law's kind of behind the appropriate medium to that medium in which the transaction takes place. Mm. That's always mm. been my view on it. But sorry, Emma, did you want to come back on that? Well, I, I don't know if you... <laughs> no, <laughs> on a kind of personal level, I would like to see, and, I, and I, we may get it at some point, I would like to see more from the ICO on their expectations mm. in this regard, because I assume your question is very much linked to the ad tech. So the ICO, for anyone who's not aware, has been doing a big investigation into ad tech and real-time bidding and, and, you know, whether current processes are compliant? Short answer is no, <laughs> um, I think. But the report's worth a read. Um, they, they've kind of released a sort of interim report at the moment, um, which sort of says, you know, basically what you've just said is that a lot of the stuff that's going on at the moment isn't being done in the right way. But I'm not sure at the moment that we've really got a lot of kind of steer from them on how they would expect to see it done. And I think that would be really useful because I think it's going to need creative thinking around how you get around that. And, you know, they've, they talked a lot in terms of creative thinking, taking the transparency example. There was a lot of commentary um, sort of this time last year when GDPR had just come into effect around how you can think more creatively in terms of complying with the transparency principles. And I think it's that same kind of thing, you know, can you, how can you make this more digestible? How can you make this more accessible to people? I think that's the kind of thinking that needs to happen. But... I, I don't think we have a lot at the moment on a regulatory level to tell us what the expectations are. So I think it's a really, really difficult question to answer. I think it's a really valid question, um, but a massive challenge. And you're right that, you know, you can do your DPIAs, you can do all your data flows, you can absolutely get your head around all of that. But how you actually then comply, yeah. you know, you're, you do your DPIA, your risk is that we're not compliant. And then your solution is, <laughs> you know, what do you, part of your DPIA is you've got to identify your solution. And what is that at the moment? And that's... That's really difficult. Yeah. Two things. The Direct Marketing Association is working to respond to this criticism from the ICO and guide its membership. So there is, there are industry groups trying to figure out exactly what they should do to be communicating. And the second thing is, you know that danger of death guy that's getting shot by a bolt of lightning on, a, on an electrical door that you see around? You're like, oh, that, if I, I could die if I go in there, right? So um, part of the guidance initially was that there ought to be some pictures like that that would communicate quickly, not suitable for children of a certain age, or other things that you're, you're saying. And I'm not sure if they've developed a way to communicate danger you could be direct marketed mm -hmm. in this game. But there are, there are <laughs> other icons that have been, yeah. have been thrown One of around. the problems is because they deal specifically as as the platform, they deal specifically with the, the gaming engineer. So we de they deal with PlayStation and, mm -hmm. and Ubisoft mm -hmm. and stuff. And it's very difficult to say to Ubisoft, have you thought of changing this or... or how about this? How yeah. about this? It's very, it's a very tough They will change to if, they, if they yeah. lose the revenue. But that's the yeah. challenge at the moment is that web, is that all that web of different people and they all need to be aligned. And how can you ensure that alignment? An open question, would it not be more sensical to regulate the platform, the PlayStation or Xbox, Xbox platform, and say a condition of providing games on this platform is the customer opts in or opts out of ad tech for the sake of argument, and then any game that's deployed on that platform would be uh, observant to whatever the consent was that was granted at that point. Yeah, I think the challenge then comes down to the granularity of yeah, that. Yeah, aren't you though, bundling consent? You can't effective. bundle the Yeah, because yeah, that's a very bundled consent, which yeah. is, is yeah, something that the ICO kind of tends to steer clear of. And actually, you know, 
to be to be compliant and to be granular, you need to be listing every single ad tech provider who's going to be targeting ads at you. And that's honestly, if you go onto if you go onto one of the, one of your platforms, you know, Facebook or whatever, and look at all the people who are targeting ads at you, it's genuinely terrifying. I saw one on Twitter the other day. Mm. Somebody posted this huge page, you know, tiny, tiny text, and that was just the A's. That was it. Was all alphabetical, <laughs> and that was just the A's. And there were genuinely about a hundred on that page, and then more and more. So it's t it's terrifying. Mm. So like, you know, how to get that level of granular, to get a valid consent, it would need to be that granular. So that's the challenge, and, that, and that's, the ch I think, the challenge of the whole thing. Right. Yeah. So. I think it's fascinating. I've, so, I've, I've, <laughs> opened a massive can of have words, a, well, it's brilliant. I have one other question as it sure. relates to AI, is the, the idea, obviously, um, non-personal data has now, the regulation has now come into effect, and yeah. Article 6 allows for um, this idea of the establishment of codes of practice to ensure interoperability for different platforms to allow uh, the individual, uh, I think it's a service providers, being whether, whether it's a business, an individual or a customer, to port that, that information. What, do you think it's a, a useful um, platform on which to, to allow the exchange of information for, with AI? Because obviously everyone in this room has their companies as they deal with AI and they're keeping it a closely guarded secret obviously for, for commercial reasons to have that competitive advantage but surely from an ethical point of view a moral point of view the only way we're going to sort this out is if we share how it works what works w what we're doing as That's a means as a means it? to yeah. en engage with each yeah. other and find out what the problems actually are and striking that balance between commercial standardization and allowing for innovation and getting the companies to sign up to something that everyone's happy to do that's a big question um and how you do that, for example, in cloud-based services, mm. that's an ongoing discussion because every company has its own proprietary way of thinking about things. But at the same time, the European Commission's about to step in and regulate how cloud service providers hand over customers to each other. And that's a big issue that they have to deal with. And similarly, in terms of what you're talking about now. Mm. Brian, Emma, is there anything you want to say in response to that? Well, no, no, no more to add, I don't think, on other than what you've said. Um, I think I, I had some interesting discussions about that point um, at another event I spoke at a couple of weeks ago with a colleague who I'm not sure if he's in the room or not. Um, but uh, yeah, there was, there was a big discussion about the extent to which people should be sharing data. And I think, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really, really valid point. I think at some point that, you know, there, there needs to be some sort of openness about it, but balancing that with the protections, you know, maybe that's where your data wranglers come in. That's, yeah. that's where your, your data, data wranglers who, you know, your, what did you call them in this? I data wranglers, yeah, like Latsu guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're, you're, you know, the people who cleanse that, maybe that's part of that role is, is, is kind of, Cleaning it up, cleaning so it, it up so that it can be shared. Yeah. But then I think you're right because it's not just about the personal data; it's about the proprietary side of things as well. And you know, not the again appreciating that people can't own data, but you know, the the the, the kind of confidential data that that people won't want to share. Yeah, you know, is is that harder to is that harder to cleanse in this context? You know, that's because yeah. well, that that is the difficulty with the data. Yeah. It's if it's not personal, if it's valuable to a company but isn't confidential. You can't follow those rights through, so therefore it's only really the way to control it is actually practically controlling access. Because once you've given access, if there are no rights from a legal point, from a statutory point of view, and it isn't particularly in the contract, then they can do anything with their data. And I think that's where some of the nervousness does come in, is because for fair reason in the past there have been known rights in the data that it causes it such problem because there isn't that legal framework around it. So do you think in the future data will be protected? I would say 
you start going to very dangerous territory if you start allowing ownership of data because it means that where do you draw the line? So then any information, anything, can then be deemed to be owned by somebody and then how do you follow those rights through? So I think from that side of it, personally, I wouldn't recommend going down the line of ownership and data because I think it becomes a very dangerous beast because I think it can have unintended consequences. I concur entirely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just to, to kind of yeah, to play a bit of a devil's advocate, um, when you're talking about AI at a kind of a basic level where it's just kind of almost like a prediction machine kind of technology, it's totally correct that, that it's really scary to think about ownership of data, but in the next 10 years, states like China will decide to do that yeah. and they will crack on and their if you look at not not kind of the extreme end of like neural networks and things like that, because that's slightly different, but in terms of just the pure prediction machines, they will have a way better um, suite of prediction machines, probably held in the, at the state level, but they will have technology that surpasses the West. So yeah. I think there's a real kind of societal question about we absolutely want to protect our data and we've got um, the GDPR, but then as a society, as as this technology evolves, there's going to be a real question about, well, the downside with that is that not everybody is going to play by the same rules. It's yeah. a great point. In the future of the web, you can see the World Wide Web almost coming to an end because of the different legal regimes are now apply in Europe and the kind of state tyranny, that that's how I describe it, that is operative now in China. I'm sure some of us saw the programme the Uyghurs last night or the night before on what's happening in Xinjiang province. No? Okay. Look it up. Great programme to watch. But on that point, it's a really fascinating one because they don't play by the same concepts that we play by in Europe or North America. The ownership of data there in China wouldn't even arise because the state would take control of that and use it for those nefarious purposes. Sorry. But the thing with ownership of data is any law, it's territorial based. So even let's say Europe or England came up with a very good way of progressing the ownership of data in a way that did work for lots of different types of data. If China doesn't implement the same law, it's irrelevant what law we come up to. They'll come up with their own. That's why, for example, there's always an issue between protection of IPR in China because they don't have the same rules. So you can have great protection in the UK, but it doesn't apply in China. So the, therefore, I don't think even therefore doing it well in the United Kingdom or Europe will help because China won't play by the same rules. So it's and I think that's what makes, when you expand that kind of thinking outside China, you know, if you have lots of other different countries with lots of other different kind of regimes, that's what then makes the cross-border sharing of data even more of a minefield than it is now. Because, you know, that's something that, you know, arguably should be able to flow freely. But obviously, if you've got different regimes providing different mm -hmm. levels of protection for, you know, potentially for personal and non-personal data or, you know, potential, you know, China saying that, yes, OK, people can own other people's data and that's that, yeah. then that that kind of glo those global data flows become much much more yeah. tricky and that and that's why partly looking at the non-legal aspect looking at the practical control security physically where this data being held and being transferred through is sometimes your greatest protection because that can be protected but while well, the law isn't being able to do the job that you want it to do Juliet, emma brian thank you very much so you've heard the discussions my key takeaway from today is that the processing of personal data in an AI context certainly throws up a lot of legal issues um, in a privacy context. 
But really, the ethical questions go far, far wider than the law. And it's not just about thinking about, can you do something within the confines of the law? It's thinking about, from an ethical perspective, should you be doing this? And bearing in mind the overarching concepts of ethics and fairness throughout the development. Now let's hear what some of our other speakers had to say. I'm Brian Craig. I lead the data protection and cybersecurity team here at TLT. This afternoon's discussion was really fascinating because there's a great deal of tension between the data protection principles, as we see in GDPR, and various elements uh, that would be required for high-functioning artificial intelligence. So, for example, data minimization only keep the minimum number, the minimum amount, only keep the minimum amount of data that you need to accomplish a task. However, under AI, it might be the case that you need massive amounts of data to do jobs that you haven't yet imagined. I'm Juliet Mason. I'm a legal director in the technology team. And one of the fundamental questions around AI is whether AI should seek to replace the work that humans do or augment it. Now, this is an ongoing debate and one that TLT itself investigated when it brought to market its own AI product, TLT Legal Sifter. So when we did this, we identified a requirement from our clients and we were particularly interested in whether AI could provide contract advice. And one of our main findings from doing this process was AI itself cannot advise without human intervention. And AI is best when it's coupled with humans' judgment. Because general AI does not exist, that doesn't mean that the AI products aren't exceptionally impressive, and I would certainly include TLT Legal Sifter in that. It is just that what works best is where AI is used to augment humans, not replace them. I'm Daniel Lloyd, and I'm a partner at the TLT digital team in London. My key takeaway from today is that everyone's really fascinated by AI and the associated issues around intellectual property rights and data protection. But at the same time, everyone's really uh, not confused, but nervous in the sense there's not that much knowledge based on real practical experience at the moment. And so what I took away from today was the fact that people were very keen to talk about it. That's become clear having had a drink with them afterwards. But during the session, they didn't feel very confident talking about it because there's not that much actual experience of using these applications in reality uh, in the legal sphere. So today they came to find out more with an eye to the future as opposed to discussing the problems they're having in the here and now. Thanks for listening. To find out more, please visit our website, tltsolicitors.com forward slash AI. The information in this podcast is for general guidance only and represents our understanding of the relevant law and practice at the time of recording. We recommend you seek specific advice for specific cases. Please visit our website for our full terms and conditions.